Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week I'm talking with Andrew McLeod. Here's a little bit from Andrew. The long-term interest of a corporation is a viable economy. Because if you don't have a viable economy, you don't have employees, you don't have customers, you don't have any of that sort of thing. So, Although more condensed than usual, I had a stimulating chat with Andrew. But before I tell you about it, here is a quick word from our sponsor for this week. A brand new product to market, Roy Mint Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find and through a connection to local artists have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partnered locations and online, you can learn more at roymintco.com and share their journey by following at roymintco on Instagram. Andrew McLeod is an author, speaker, former humanitarian worker, board member and advisor. An impressive list of roles, but they really don't tell you that much about him. Sitting having a conversation with Andrew, I was struck by his breadth of knowledge, his compassion for people and planet, and his practical know-how of applying his learning with the realities of our current context. Our conversation ranges from the lofty heights of the changing world order to what this means to how we can live in the here and now. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy listening to Andrew McLeod on working for good within the systems we find ourselves living. How are you? We're very well. <laughs> we are a little bit condensed for time, we but are. Um, that's okay. Maybe we'll, I might do it a little bit differently today mm-hmm. to what I normally do, but that's, uh, we'll see how we go. But anyway, start by talking about where we are and why you've chosen this place for uh, our conversation. This place, because this is where I live. Uh, yeah. You know, this, uh, I grew up around here, it's South Melbourne. Um, you know, we, we moved in here when I was a small child in about 1971 when it was still a, in an urban almost slum. Yeah. So uh, my family's been here right through the gentrification process of, of this suburb. Um, this two blocks of Raglan Street where we are I really like because it's 15 feet wider than every other part of Raglan Street because this is where the old horse-drawn tram used to drop people to Melbourne's first horse racing track which is now how Crescent and St Vincent placed which is why oh, it's yeah. oval because it used to be a horse racing track so that's why we're here. <laughs> wow, that's mm. cool. <laughs> so I'm here just for the Christmas New Year period and uh, catching up with some friends and doing some things like that before I head back to Europe on Sunday. Yeah, and I'm just looking around this room, looking at all the amazing paintings mm. you've got everywhere. Um, all of all them are places. street art. Are they? Yeah, so um, the most expensive one here is the one behind your shoulder, which cost me about a hundred bucks in um, Lahore, Pakistan. Yeah. And it's bizarre, the framing on all of them costs much more than the paintings do themselves. <laughs> so yeah. we've got the, the tapestry from from Central Asia, that that uh, painting is from Pakistan, that one's from Afghanistan, that's Northern Pakistan, that's Vietnam, that's Cambodia, that's Vietnam, the woman with a cigar is Cuba, the uh, graffiti artist up, up at the end of the corridor there, he's from uh, Cuba. I, I need to somehow win the lottery and buy a bigger house to put some more up because I've got a whole bunch in the roof as oh, well. Oh, do you? So, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and a good friend of mine has probably three or four of my favorite pieces hanging at his place because while I'm not here, I put this on Airbnb. Yeah. Um, so the favorite ones need to sit somewhere safe. Yeah, okay. Mm. And so obviously travel is a very big part of your life. It is. Why, why do you travel so much? Um, well, there's two, two or three answers to that question. One of them is, um, you know, there's a big bad world out there, a whole bunch of interesting people. Um, I like to visit different cultures, learn about different languages, learn about the different way people uh, do things, different ways that they live. Um, and my work through the 1990s and 2000s was in the humanitarian space. So I like to say I've been to every country ending in Stan that doesn't have an up-to-date lonely planet. <laughs> um, but it was post-conflict, post-natural disaster work. And now I do a lot of work in the corporate community interface, trying to show companies how they can adjust all of their external facing footprints to improve community benefit but improve profitability at the same time. You know, you just can't wag your finger at a company and say, do this because it's nice. You've got to show how good behavior can actually be either profitable or valuable over the long term. So that has me going to weird and wonderful places as well. So, so you, you're employed by the corporations, are you, to do that? Or? Um, I'm employed by different people at different times. So I'm a visiting professor at King's College in London, doing a lot of academic work around that corporate community interface from a public policy perspective. I sit on the board of a number of um, companies now as well, uh, and I do freelance consulting advisory and speaking work. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time in the non-for-profit world before I realised the non-for-profit world can't take the next step to long-term sustainable economic growth. They can do work around immediate aftermath of natural disasters or conflicts to provide the humanitarian support that uh, people need to stay alive after a disaster. But they're not very good at job creation. And they're not very good at job creation because the essential component within the global system for long-term sustainable, well-regulated and well-remunerated employment is capitalism. In other words, you need to accept profitability as a legitimate motivation in the way people do things. And many people who work in the non-for-profit movement work in the non-for-profit movement because they're ideologically opposed to profit. And therefore, they don't understand the realities of how capital works to be able to create sustainable employment. So you get all of these great ideas about piggeries and basket weaving projects and things like that, as if we're gonna bring the world out of poverty by selling straw hats to celebrities on the internet. What you actually need to do is get more and better capital into the lesser developed economies in a way that understands the long-term nature of a corporation requires the long-term creation of a viable economy and decent employment. And even the biggest economies in the world sometimes forget that. And if you look at the United States, they've got to the point where corporations have forgotten you need to pay proper and decent wages to people so people have disposable income. And if they have disposable income, they then spend on things that your corporation will be making. So I, I don't want to come across as someone that says capitalism is the answer to everything and I'm somehow a, a love child of Newt Gingrich and Sarah Palin. Um, but you know, I'm also not the love child of, of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. You know, you've got to have a degree of realism on, on how the world works. And I think economies like Canada and Australia that have well-regulated capitalist systems, fair minimum wages, universal health care, are very good e economies to model. And we keep falling in the trap of wanting to be more like the United States, which is on the verge of failing. So 
you can see that extreme uh, socialism failed. Extreme capitalism will also fail. It's about getting the regulatory environment right and getting um, corporate leaders to understand their role shouldn't be as CEO now. Their role should be as a custodian of a corporation through time because the long-term interest of a corporation is a viable economy. Because if you don't have a viable economy, you don't have employees, you don't have customers, you don't have any, have any of that sort of thing. So my, my work takes me to different environments to explain that to political leaders, economic leaders, community leaders, to say, actually, we're better off if we all work together. And then that, that short-termism thinking that I guess politicians have, but I guess most humans have, it's mm. very hard to think past our lifetime, mm. seems to be quite a constraint on the longevity of the work we do and the impact that we have. Depends where in the world you are. Um, you know, Cousin Donald over in the United States is proving the, the negative of that. He's my fifth cousin once removed. I, I oh, really? That. Yeah, his mother, <laughs> Mary Ann McLeod, comes from a little village on the Isle of Lewis next door to where my great-grandfather comes from. And I was up there recently and uh, had my third cousins explain where on the family tree he fits. And as I say, he's fifth cousin once removed, which is not removed enough for my life. <laughs> but um, if you look at the way the Chinese do things, the Chinese do it very differently. Deng Xiaoping was once asked after the Cultural Revolution, you know, China's going through a rough time, isn't it? And the Westerners are thinking, you know, the last two or three years. And he said, yeah, it's been a bad couple of centuries, but we'll recover. Uh, and if you look at things like China's one road, one belt policy, which most white people have not twigged to because, well, it's not our culture. If it's not our culture, we therefore don't pay any interest is a multi-generation, multi-trillion dollar physical infrastructure program which is rebuilding the Silk Road. And effectively China has now connected themselves from East Africa through Persia, through South Asia, through Central Asia. Um, and uh, Hillary Clinton and, and um, Donald Trump by rejecting the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a US-led free trade agreement throughout the Asia Pacific but excluding China has now handed the Pacific to the Chinese as well because their, their response to the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a thing called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a free trade agreement throughout the Asia-Pacific led by China but excluding the United States. So between RCEP and TPP, both China and the United States were saying to the whole Asia-Pacific region, whose side are you on? And even China realised that they were playing a long game and that RCEP would probably come into being in 20 or 30 years' time. But Trump and Clinton, by getting rid of Trans-Pacific Partnership, have just given the Asia-Pacific to, to China um, a generation earlier than they were expecting. So they've locked up East Africa through Central Asia to China. They've now locked up the, the uh, Pacific or been gifted the Pacific, which leaves you a stagnating Europe and an east coast of South America and North America is the only parts of the world left. And just to really reinforce that, people love to say China is the fastest growing region of the world, which it is, and they talk about India as one of the, one of the fastest growing. But again, white people uh, fail to see things outside their own culture. The second fastest growing region of the world, in fact, wasn't India, it's sub-Saharan Africa. And a lot of people in Europe, Australia, um, the United States, still have a view of Africa that's 20 years out of date. You know, a lot of the wars of the 1990s, some of which I was in, are finished, and you see, amazing turnarounds in countries like Mozambique, Namibia, Angola, Sierra Leone, Rwanda. Um, you've still got some basket cases like Democratic Republic of Congo, but there's an enormous growth story coming out of Africa, which a lot of people in, in countries like Australia just don't see. So it, it's an interesting world that the people who take the short-term 
and culturally specific view that you're alluding to are missing some of the great growth stories mm. um, and are not starting to ask themselves the question, how will the world look in 10 or 15 years time when we're no longer dominated by the US and we may have really liked our peace protesters walking up the street saying things like no blood for oil and the United States is the big Satan. But have we really ever thought what's the world going to look like when someone else in someone else's culture is leading it, when English won't be the dominant language of commerce down the track, um, when the uh, capitalist free trade, free expression, liberalist individual first type culture, which has been dominating global trade for a couple of generations, mm. when that's no longer dominating. You know, we are passing through a time in history akin to the Greek Empire falling and the Roman Empire rising, or the Roman Empire falling and the Zoroastrian Empire rising. You know, we are seeing the end of uh, Anglo-Saxon Christian liberalism dominating global politics and trade, and it's going to be taken over by the Chinese, and it's happening in our lifetime. There's a few things to talk about from that. Yeah, there is. Um, so, I mean, you'll, you might have a unique perspective on this, but there's just over the... I mean, the things that I've been thinking about over this summer period are, one, humans going to Mars, mm. potentially in a not-too-distant future, maybe in my lifetime. And the second one is about, I guess, I've been reading this book called um, Homo Deus by... Mm. Um, Yurav Noah Harari, I think that's mm. his name, Yuraj Noah Harari. And it's just got me thinking about the massive change in, um, I guess, in life sciences, in mm. interconnectivity, and in humans no longer being the apex mm. of the planet mm. and, and something else taking its place, whether it be a computer mm. algorithm. Yeah. And I, I or have, we just destroy ourselves and give it to the cockroaches. I mean, you, yeah. you know the old story that, um, you know, we've only been here something like one-tenth of the time of the dinosaurs were here. Exactly. You know, yeah. the, the possibility of human extinction is real. Yeah. So that's my, you know, that's, I guess, do you think about stuff like that? And, and, and if you do, like, what, what could humans be doing now? Where, where will we fit? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think you could summarize human beings as a species as saying we're intelligent enough to destroy ourselves, but not intelligent enough to not destroy ourselves. Um, you know, I've been arguing for some time that the micro states have got their negotiating position on climate change wrong. You know, stop, stop talking about carbon emissions. You know, I, I just don't think Western politics and economies are ready to make the radical changes they need to stop carbon emissions, therefore sea levels will rise, therefore Tokelau, Tuvalu and others are going to go underwater. So if I were the Tokelauans or the Tuvaluans, I wouldn't be arguing or negotiating about carbon emissions, I would be asking for visas. And maybe you could give 10,000 visas for Tokelau, maybe you can give 10,000 visas for Tuvalu, but about 100 million Bangladeshis are going to need visas as well, as a third of that country goes underwater. Um, and if we're so scared of a few thousand arriving on boats like the Tampa, what's going to happen? when climate change forces hundreds of millions of people to seek uh, alternative ways of living. I don't think the human species is ready for that. Um, clearly, we have 99.5 <clears throat> or whatever it is percent of global scientists agreeing that we're 
heading down a very dangerous path when we think we can solve it by paying five cents for plastic bags at, at Coles. Um, so we are a smart enough species to destroy ourselves, but not a smart enough species to take the long-term decisions against perhaps our short-term individual interests and replace that with a long-term collectivity. So even though in the last few minutes you might have detected I'm a little bit cynical about Chinese leadership, the one thing that China does that's different from us is it does think long-term and it does put the collective in front of the individual. And maybe countries like China are the only way to stop us uh, really having a, a climactic catastrophe. Um, to which people say, well, China's not a very good example, look at how polluted Beijing is. And I'm like, no, it's actually a good example because what China is doing is they are industrialising and polluting to the point where they reach a tipping point where the growing middle class demand clean air and clean water. So they now have some of the largest environment or the strongest environmental standards in the world slowly being implemented, planned to be implemented and, and being implemented. They now spend more money as a proportion of their economy on solar and wind than Australia does. Hmm. Not just absolutely, but as a proportion of their economy. In other words, they are dedicating a higher proportion for the long-term planning and the long-term thinking about, uh, about low fossil fuels. And they test things in different villages and cities around China about de-gridding and micro-gridding their energy infrastructure. For example, there are villages and towns throughout Western China, I've just come back from the Urumqi Kashgar area, where your street lights are LEDs and they're powered by a small solar panel and a windmill on top of the street light. And when you think about that, they had to, and, and still are working on improving cold weather battery technology because uh, those parts of China get, you know, minus 20, minus 30. And somehow you need a battery to be able to store energy in that cold climate, which is very, very difficult. So there's a lot of advanced thinking going into that battery technology as well as the windmill and the solar panel technology to be able to provide enough power to, fund, uh, to, to fire that street light whenever it's needed, which then saves an enormous amount, not only in the electricity generation, but you don't need the copper cables to connect the street light into, um, into the central grid. Now, where is Australia experimenting with microgridding? Where are we ex experimenting with degridding our basic infrastructure? And the answer is we're not. You know, we're experimenting with turning coal into electricity. Um, so the leading economies and politics at the moment are proving incapable of thinking long term. That's why we're electing Donald Trump. That's why we're electing Pauline Hanson. That's why Brexit got up. Whereas the non-democratic countries like the Chinese, are actually showing at the moment a better ability to think long-term than we are. So maybe democracy is an experiment that's just about to fail. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, because I mean, one of, the, one of the ideas that he puts forward in the book is mm. that, you know, um, I guess humanism mm. and liberalism is, is about to become irrelevant. Mm. And that new forms of... I guess people contributing to the economy and people contributing to politics and political mm. structures are about to emerge. Mm. And it's going to happen possibly quite quickly mm. as, yeah, as certain technologies become more of a reality. Mm. And um, that's a pretty interesting scenario that you're talking mm. about there. Mm. And, you know, you know, 
people are just not tweaking to it. You know, if you think of the way we learned history, the Greeks begat the Romans, begat the Dark Ages, begat the Renaissance, Age of Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution, Age of Empire, creation of the United States, there's history. The problem is, there's a thousand years from about the year three or 400 to about the year of 13 or 1400 that we dismiss, we the white Christians, mm. uh, dismissed as the Dark Ages where the world went backwards. The problem is the world didn't go backwards in that thousand year period we went backwards yeah but when i ask you you know who discovered the world was round you know most people who went through european education will tell you that it was galileo the problem is 200 years before galileo ulubek did in a he discovered the world was round in his observatory outside samarkand in what's now uzbekistan but we dismissed that because it's not our culture ask people what the roman numeral for zero is and they'll look at you blankly and go, oh, actually, there wasn't one. That's right. Well, how do you have the decimal system without the number zero? You can't. Who invented or perfected the use of the number zero? There's some, some question about who invented it, but who perfected its use? A guy named Al-Harazamu, who did it in his school outside Kiva, again, in what's now known as Uzbekistan. But because of all these great advances in science, maths, uh, medicine, astronomy, all happened in what's now Central Asia, which we completely dismiss, and it wasn't ours because it all happened in the Dark Ages when we went backwards. And wasn't Rome such a great empire, you know, the most powerful empire in the world until the British Empire? Well, that's also not true because the Roman Empire was nothing but a small empire clinging onto the Mediterranean by its fingernails. You know, nothing compared to the Mongols or the Mughals in India or the Chinese or so many other empires that were not part of our culture, so we dismiss it. And we're so good at dismissing things that are not part of our culture, we're dismissing what things outside of our culture are doing now and don't realise that leadership has already been lost. Like, we love to say the US president is the most powerful man in the world. I don't think he is anymore. You know, the United States is a more powerful country than China, without doubt, but the Chinese president has a lot more power within China than the US president has within the United States. So I'd argue that the president of China is actually now the most powerful man in the world. Yeah. And then... And that's the challenge for Trump. How does Trump preside over a country where Obama, through no fault of his own, is the first US president in history to preside over a declining relative influence of the United States. Every other president has seen the um, United States getting more and more important. It's now getting comparatively less important as Russia is finding its feet again, as China is not rising but returning to global dominance. You know, it was the global dominant um, economy and culture in the, up until the year 1500. Again, we just dismissed it because it wasn't our culture. So what happens in the United States as those people are very short term and they're thinking, as you were saying earlier, have got to come to terms with the fact that they are no longer the most powerful country in the world or no longer the largest e economy in the world. What does the President of the United States do in managing the psychology of his own people mm -hmm. during a time when the decline will become more and more apparent? Yeah. Then it gets really dangerous. There's a question in my head about, well, there's, there's two. There's one about even a broader view, which is, which is what we touched on earlier, and, mm. that, and that's the biological long-term mm. view of our species, and mm. that we weren't always the head, nope. and we probably won't always be the head. Correct. There's another question about then, and maybe it comes back to the work that you do and why you do it. It's about what 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 is the role of humans within the context that we live now with that long-term perspective well, let, let me answer it in a strange way you know when people ask 
what's the meaning of life? I tell them it's an invertebrate shrimp. Back in 1994, I was about to go over to Britain for my masters. I thought I'd better go and see those parts of Australia that all the Poms have seen that I haven't, including <laughs> Ayers Rock, Uluru. Yeah. And I rock up there, it was uh, uh, 12 days after the last rain and uh, a lot of water around, which is unusual. And back in those days, like now, uh, the indigenous people uh, request you not to climb the rock. Uh, now, I'm at the same time sympathetic to the cultural need to respect traditions and customs, but they're also the people that now control the rock. If it means that much, close it. Don't put the guilt trip on me. Close it and I'll support you from closing it, but while it's open, you know, I'll climb up it. So I did, and I was sitting up there at uh, about four o'clock in the morning waiting for the sun to rise. And I understood why it's very spiritual for them because it's, a, it's an incredible place to be at sunrise, to sit on the top, because you're 800 meters off the desert floor and you're hearing the nocturnal animals going to bed and then the other ones waking up as this beautiful golden glow comes out over the horizon. It, it, it's an astonishing place to be. And as the sun came up, I noticed this puddle next to me in the top of the rock these little shrimps swimming around inside it, little shrimp. I'm, I'm not a biologist, I'm using the wrong term. Um, and then I suddenly went, hang on a minute, what are they doing here? You know, this is in a puddle on the top of a rock, 800 metres off a desert floor where it rains every decade or so. You know, this is 12 days life cycle every, every uh, decade or so. That's not a lot of evolution. Um, so I went and saw a biologist and he said, oh yeah, yeah, these, these things, he gave me the name. Uh, they lay their eggs at the bottom, they stay in the dust at the bottom of these little uh, indentations on the rock. When the water comes, they're reactivated, they have a 12 day life cycle, grow old, breed, plant eggs and die. All right, that's cool. Uh, they play no role in any food chain. You know, even if a bird eats one now, you know, great, I eat a shrimp once every 10 years. Nah, so no significant role in any food chain at all no larger purpose at all. They're not a predator, they're not a prey, they're not going anywhere except on the top of this rock. Their existence, the purpose of their life is life itself. That's it. You know, the meaning of life is to live. We in our species have a consciousness that allows us to realize we're alive and then asks us to do something with that life. Now, people might decide to rape and pillage, they might decide to have wars, they might decide to get rich and drive a Ferrari, they might decide to spend their life helping other human beings or helping the planet or helping other species. People have to make up their own mind because they have a consciousness. What is it that they want to do with their own life? For me, I like to think that my life is about doing good work and inspiring other people to do good work. Now, other people have other, other things they do with their life, but when people say, what's the meaning of life and what's the purpose? That's a shrimp on his rock. <laughs> it's just to live. It's just to live. Yeah. That's it. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm going to have to do some big apologies to God if it turns out I'm wrong and he actually exists. <laughs> it's like, listen, sunshine, I did all right with my life. You know, don't throw me down into that fiery pit or whichever version of God turns out to be right if God actually is true. Um, I'm pretty convinced he's not, but, uh, but you know, I, I do think, you know, life is here to be life. And I use a thing called the day before I die test. You know, if someone turns around and says, you're going to die tomorrow, how do you value your own life? What is the framework that you use to say whether your life has been worthwhile to your mind? Um, and my balance is, did I do more good than harm? And so far, I reckon I have.
Yeah. Andrew, I know you've got a, a call to jump onto, so we can we can wrap it up there. But sorry, it's so short. We uh, for, right. the, for the listeners, um, my my doorbell wasn't loud enough. I was sitting in the back garden drinking a cup of coffee, waiting for you to arrive, and you'd already been here. So. Uh, <laughs> We, we, burnt, uh, we burnt another half hour of discussion, but um, maybe we can do a follow-up via Skype or, or another chat down the track. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Cheers. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Reflecting upon my conversation with Andrew prompted me to think on the following question. What small things can I do to shift my perspective to taking ideas that are broader than my own culture and sense of timescale? If you feel like sharing your response to this question, feel free to post something on the Facebook page, through Twitter or Instagram, or even sending me an email, adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are any subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Coming up next week, I'll be talking with Bronwyn King about challenging big corporates to drop their financial interests in big tobacco. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest of subtle disruption. Bye for now.